soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. For if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Amen. Father God, we come to your word this morning. I pray that you would teach our hearts to tremble at your word. And I pray, Father, that you would enable me uh, to faithfully uh, give an exposition of this scripture and also, Father, to apply it as you would have it applied to uh, our current world. I pray, Father, that uh, you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we continue uh, by responding to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> in the first 150 years since the Constitution was written, it was very common for the Bible to be quoted in uh, the courtrooms. And... Uh, uh, some people today are surprised when they discover that, but Federer, Amos, Barton, and many other people have showed that that is clearly the case. Now, what's happened in the last 100 years is that the ACLU and a judiciary with an agenda had succeeded in removing almost completely God and the Bible from uh, the courtrooms. <coughs> and there are still some uh, remnants of God and Bible in uh, uh, most of the courtrooms, actually, of the nation. You'll find uh, the Ten Commandments displayed in a lot of different places, and they've been there, you know, for the last 150, 200 years. But most of the time, those are just empty symbols. That is not the case with Judge Roy Moore. Uh, with Judge Roy Moore, he has been appealing to our constitutional documents as uh, applying biblical law to the Alabama Constitution, to 200 years of court precedent, to common, uh, common law, to the Tenth Amendment. And I think that he has a fantastic case, even though you're probably not going to hear much about it in the, in the newspaper. Uh, he refused to do what other Christian lawyers have done. There are a number of Christian, cases, uh, Christian lawyers who have taken cases where Ten Commandments have been involved. And what they have done is they have tried to win the battle, and they've succeeded many times. They've tried to win the battle by affirming the legitimacy of the lemon test, which says that there has to be a secular purpose, an exclusively secular purpose for the Ten Commandments. And so they argue, well, it, it's not religion in here. This is just a secular purpose. It's got historical value. And I don't consider those to be uh, uh, battles that have been won at all. Uh, because Judge Moore was unwilling to make this just a secular trinket, a secular symbol, but rather, he has gone to the real heart of the issue, which is the lordship of God over the state. Uh, it, this, is, I think, is a very, very significant uh, court case. And there are many judicial scholars, Christian scholars, who believe this is probably the best 
framed case to be before the courts since the uh, war between the states. And uh, I think it's very important that uh, we speak up in defense of Judge Moore. Uh, one of the reasons I'm preaching on the limits of government, uh, this is part of our foundation series because we believe in the sovereignty of Christ over every area of life and God's word over every area of life, including the government. But I think it really is a critical time. God has positioned this case to be a fantastic opportunity as the potential for reversing 50 years of judicial activism, especially since it is wrapped up in Tenth Amendment issues where the state of Alabama could uh, be getting on board. And unfortunately, the whole state has not been doing that, but there is still maybe yet to come, and I think we cannot be quiet about this. Now, many Christians do not realize the extent to which humanistic culture wars have impacted our nation. In fact, many Christians nowadays uh, argue that Romans 13 indicates that the government can do anything that uh, it wants to do. Uh, they take the first phrase of chapter 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, and they say Judge Moore is just flat out wrong. He is not subject to Judge Thompson. And uh, so this is, I think, a very important passage to look at. They criticize him for uh, disobeying Judge Thompson, they, they claim this passage teaches unquestioning obedience. And so what I want to do before I even look at Romans 13, I want to give a little bit of historical background to kind of frame why this debate has come up and why it's so important that churches get involved. And actually, before I even uh, do any of that, I want to give you a couple of sample court cases that can show you how hostile the judiciary has become against the Bible. Some of you may remember a, a court case in the next county over uh, in Sarpy County of Aaron Potno. Uh, he was a child molester that had uh, been caught, had repeatedly sodomized this uh, child, and uh, he pleaded guilty. And he was, he was convicted. He, the the case was no technicalities, nothing wrong with the case, you know, that could later on get it overturned, or so they, so they thought. When the judge read what the sentence would be, he was, he was very horrified with this thing, and he was giving historical pre precedent, trying to show the seriousness of this issue, and he quoted the Bible as a part of that. Well, somebody complained that there was a quotation of the Bible, and so the Nebraska Supreme Court uh, put its nose in and uh, uh, did a review of it and overturned the case, not because there were any technicalities, not because anything had been done wrong in terms of witnesses or evidence. He had pleaded guilty. It wasn't even because he had changed his guilty plea, the sole basis for overturning that case was because for a brief moment, the Bible had been quoted. And so Attorney General Don Stenberg, he appealed it to the Supreme Court. Let me read you, let me read you an old clipping of the Supreme Court's refusal to overturn. The Supreme Court refused yesterday to review a Nebraska high court decision that overturned a child molester's prison sentence because the trial judge quoted Bible verses when imposing the man's punishment. The justices let stand the Nebraska Supreme Court's ruling because reasonable people might question the judge's impartiality. So if you believe in the Bible, you're probably not impartial. You know, you might be prejudiced against criminals. Uh, let me give you another clipping, this one from Pennsylvania. Convicted and sentenced by a jury for brutally clubbing to death a 71-year-old woman with an axe handle so that he could steal her Social Security check the perpetrator got his sentence overturned. Why? 
because the prosecuting attorney, in a statement lasting less than five seconds, mentioned a Bible verse in the courtroom. The fury that is being poured out on Judge uh, Moore right now is a fury that realizes the danger of that court case as a precedent in overturning some of the judicial activism that has been happening over the past 50 years, and they are trying everything that they can, including all kinds of propaganda. The, the lies that have been told in the media about Judge Moore, uh, I think, are just ungodly, very ungodly. And uh, so anyway, I think that this does have, if Alabama sticks with him, does have the potential for overturning 50 years of judicial activism. Now, some Christians believe this is just the natural outworking of a constitution that has made our nation a secular nation. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, this is uh, perfectly understandable. And uh, even if you do believe that, um, I hope by the end of this sermon you'll realize at least it shouldn't be that way. But the more I have studied this question of is, are we a secular nation, the more I have been convinced that that is absolutely not the case. And apologies to Gary North and his book, uh, Political Polytheism. I am more convinced than ever that his thesis is flat out wrong. It is wrong. Now, this sermon does not rise or fall on whether Gary North is right or wrong on this issue, but I'm, I, I'm wanting to present this background information so that we can see, hey, it is legitimate to be holding judges to the Constitution and to our founding documents and that he does have both a constitutional and a biblical leg to stand on. And uh, I've put a paper on the back table, and it probably is in your worship notes, uh, that gives some of the arguments, and I'm not going to cover those, but let me give you four quickies. First of all, it's clear to me that the Constitution did not do away with the Declaration of Independence, which is clearly a covenantal document under God and under the laws of God. The United States Code Annotated says that it's binding, that no state can join the Union without affirming the principles of the Declaration of Independence, and so it's binding upon all states. And as one writer says, this alone makes our nation in covenant with God. This writer said, every time a state joined the Union, they were acknowledging God as king because they were acknowledging the Declaration of Independence. Second, the Constitution upholds common law as being the governing law of the land. Amendment 7 says, in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. In fact, if you read McClellan's uh, huge book on the law, he says you can't even understand the the Constitution, apart from reference to the common law, because there's so many things that depend upon common law, even for, for uh, definition. Now, common law was simply the application of Christianity and biblical law to issues in culture over the past thousand years or so. That's, that's exactly what it was application of, of biblical law. Now think of this. If the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, then the Constitution is making common law the supreme law of the land, and it's also making biblical law the supreme law of the land. And uh, I, 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 in the paper, I didn't have um, uh, room to fit too many quotations, but let me give you one that's not in the paper. Charles Pinckney was a delegate from the South to the Constitutional Convention. He was one of the signers of the, the 
the Constitution. He knew inside and out what the debates were all about. He knew what it meant. And uh, he was a, a lawyer, an aide-de-camp to George Washington, was nominated by Washington to the Supreme Court. Now, he did turn that down, but in any case, he was recognized as being a legal scholar, as being an authority on common law. And so if you think that Jesus was overthrown by this Constitution, because prior to this, it's clear, we were a Christian nation. But if you think that he was overthrown by this, listen to what the, the, the common law says. And the Constitution upholds the, the, the common law's interpretations even on radical things like blasphemy. Pinckney, one of the authors of the Constitution, he's the one I just mentioned, he made this statement, Blasphemy against the Almighty is denying his being or providence or uttering contumelious reproaches on our Savior Christ. It is punished at common law by fine and imprisonment for Christianity is part of the laws of the land. And his opinion is exactly the way the Supreme Court interpreted common law and interpreted our Constitution for the next 150 years. And that's why they treated the, the Constitution as enforcing Christianity, though not one particular denomination. James Wilson, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington, said, quote, Christianity is part of the common law. By the way, he started the first law school, and um, uh, in that uh, uh, law school, he developed a, a textbook, and he said in that textbook that uh, uh, common law is the application of Christianity and biblical law to cultural issues, and it's an accumulation over the past many years. And that book is so replete with scriptures that even many generations later, people like Charles Finney became Christians. They got converted by reading their law, law textbook. And uh, so this, this is the kind of background uh, that, uh, that you find when you study the early, uh, uh, the early documents. A common law nation is a Christian nation. And uh, it's no wonder to me, therefore, that the courts nowadays don't operate usually in terms of common law, though they do still reference it. A third, I think it, even though it was unwise, that the prohibition of Congress establishing a religion that was in Article, I mean, that was in Amendment 1, and the religious test prohibition, that's in Article 6, were not prohibitions of Christianity. What they were is they were prohibitions of the federal government establishing one of the denominations of Christianity. And the Supreme Court has said this explicitly. One of the denominations. They did not want it to be a situation where one of the states that already had established a religion, and by the way, there were established uh, states that brought in established religion into the Constitution long after the First Amendment was ratified. Okay? This was Congress that was not supposed to establish a religion. And so they did not want the federal government to be establishing a religion which might prejudice uh, one of the states. Instead, the federal government was to enforce Christianity in general and enforce the Bible, but not any one particular denominational view, which means that there wouldn't be any federal officers that would do what some state officers had to do. And I'll give you a couple of quotes. State officers, in some cases, had to affirm specific denominational backgrounds. Sometimes it was just Protestantism in general, but sometimes... Uh, you know, federal government couldn't say, okay, an officer has to be a Congregationalist or he has to be an Episcopalian. They were not allowed, uh, they were not allowed to do that. Um, 
And right from the beginning, all three branches of government affirmed that. And I give you at least a couple of sample quotes from each of the branches of the government right from the first session. And then you can look elsewhere. There's tons of quotes for the intervening uh, generations since then. From Washington on, every federal officer was required to take an oath with the words, so help me God. And in the paper, I give, these are current oaths that uh, officers have to take, including Judge Thompson. And then finally, the Northwest Ordinance prohibited any secular state from ever joining the Union. It stated that religion was necessary for good government, unquote. And again, the United States Code annotated lists the Northwest Ordinance as part of America's organic law. From that time on, every state that joined the Union not only had to affirm the Declaration of Independence, they had to agree with the Northwest Ordinance, which says you can't be a secular state. It says that religion is necessary for a good government. And so a lot of these states just took the language straight out of the Northwest Ordinance and put it verbatim right into their Constitution. Others had many references to, uh, to God and Christianity that were in there. And in the 1700s, the term religion referred to Christianity, and that's certainly the way that the courts interpreted over the next 150 years or so. Now, let's assume, that's just a brief summary of the paper, okay? But let's assume I am flat out wrong, that it was indeed a coup, and that these people who had been given one mandate had an entirely different agenda, and that was to take a Christian nation and turn it into a secular nation. If that was true, then you would expect that George Washington would do everything in his power to remove references to the Bible and Jesus Christ and the Holy Trinity and things like that from uh, government actions. And in fact, you find him doing the exact opposite. If Washington and the other 54 delegates did indeed foist the secular document upon our people, if they overthrew a Christian nation, if they substituted a secular humanistic one, then literally thousands of court cases and treaties and congressional enactments and presidential proclamations and military mandates were blatantly unconstitutional. In fact, the very first thing that George Washington did was unconstitutional because in his inaugural address, he not only affirms God throughout, but he says that for any nation to be blessed, they must submit to God's laws. And then the very next act of the Congress, and it's written in their record, you can read it, is to say that the Senate and the Congress and the Vice President and the President will adjourn and they will go to a worship service in the Episcopal Church, which lasted for two hours. Uh, it would have been unconstitutional for um, George Washington uh, to make this uh, uh, National Day of Thanksgiving proclamation, quote, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God to obey His will, unquote. Now, for a man who was trying to secularize this nation, he did hundreds of things in his lifetime that actually produced the exact opposite. He was trying to religionize it. Well, he was just living consistently with the way the nation had already always been living. If the Constitution mandates a secular nation, then it was unconstitutional for Congress to begin its treaty of December 24, 1814 with these words, in the name of the most holy and indivisible Trinity. Our national motto, in God we trust, that we have on our money would be unconstitutional. Uh, our Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, would be unconstitutional. So I just find it very hard to believe Gary North's a thesis, even though I was uh, somewhat enamored with it for a while, the more I studied the original documents, I cannot believe these people. They've succeeded in making a secular nation 
And then all of a sudden now they do the exact opposite and they're doing everything that they can to honor God and the Bible in, in the government. It's just too hard for me to believe. Ever since Lutz and Heinemann did their massive study a few years ago, 15,000 political documents that they analyzed from 1760 to 1805, the evidence has been overwhelming that this was indeed established as a Christian nation. Even Newsweek magazine said in the December 26 issue, 1982, he said, now historians are discovering that the Bible, perhaps even more than the Constitution, is our founding document. Now, it's in that context that you need to see why Judge Moore must affirm the sovereignty of Christ in his courtroom. He has pledged himself to the Declaration of Independence, which says we are under God and we are under God's laws. He has pledged himself to the Constitution, which has said we must live according to common law. And what is common law? It is the application of biblical law to our society. It's court case precedent. He is um, under a nation which has always held that nothing in the state can be repugnant to the Northwest Ordinance, which mandates you cannot have a secular state. Judge Thompson wants him to have a secular state. He's sworn to do, exact op do the exact opposite, to not have a secular state and to affirm that religion is necessary for good government. Uh, the federal judge said that God could not be acknowledged in the courtroom. Well, the Alabama Constitution says, invokes, quote, the favor and guidance of Almighty God. Now, how in the world is an Alabama court supposed to uh, say we're no longer going to rule in terms of the Constitution? That's exactly what his mandate is. He must rule in terms of the constitutional documents. And all through the Alabama constitutional documents, you find references to God, who alone has given us our inalienable rights. Um, and so there, there's many, many uh, indications that Judge Moore uh, is perfectly justified in, in opposing this ungodly uh, command from Judge Thompson. Failing to acknowledge God is hardly a way of seeking God's favor and seeking the guidance of the Almighty. Um, the oath of office has the words, so help me God, and the sheer hypocrisy of the feds asking them to remove the commandments from their, their courtroom can be seen in the fact that the Ten Commandments are in the United States Supreme Court behind those Supreme Court justices that that, you know, won't take on this court. Maybe eventually those are going to get whitewashed over as well. Who knows? But uh, in this culture war, it is a contest between two religions. It's the religion of humanism and the religion of Christianity, the religion of God. Religion in government is inescapable. All authority, all authority is religious by nature. And if there is no authority above the government, then the government has declared itself to be God. Now, Chief Justice Roy Moore has set the stage for true issues to come up. Other court, uh, Ten Commandments court cases, I do not think have done so because they have affirmed the legitimacy of the lemon test. The lemon test needs to be overthrown. That's a ridiculous, a ridiculous uh, guidance for what can and cannot be done by the government. Uh, Judge Moore said has said that the Ten Commandments are not a secular trinket, but they are the law by which all law must be tested. And we need to support him and encourage him and pray for him, pray for restitution. We need to pray against his enemies. And I don't know what it is that God is preparing him for. You know, whether he loses or doesn't lose, here is a man who has proven himself to have real metal because he has gone through enormous sacrifices, enormous emotional strain, financial difficulties because of his stands. And here is a man that we need to keep our eyes on and say, Lord, what are you going to do with this man? 
Maybe eventually he's going to be in some kind of another office. We don't know. And so here is a man who understands the limits of civil government, and that's where I want to begin the sermon. What is the nature of the authority in verse 1, and what is the nature of subjection to that authority? Now, Moore has been criticized by some Christians because they say he violates that first phrase, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, and they say he's not subject. He's disobeying Judge Thompson. But let's just think about that for a moment. Did the Apostle Paul violate his own commandment when he refused to stop preaching the gospel? I mean, think about that. Why was he in jail all the time? It was because he was violating the, the orders of, of government officials, right? And so that cannot be a true interpretation of what, of what he is saying here. Um, he disobeyed authorities, and yet he insisted that he was in total submission to true authority. Now, if the only concept of authority that you have been educated in is a humanistic concept of authority, that seems like a contradiction. But biblically, it absolutely is not a contradiction. All the apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin. Were they failing to submit to authorities when they say we ought to obey God rather than man? No, of course not. The Pharisees were operating outside of their jurisdictional authority when they were making those kind of commandments. Think of it this way. Let's say that you're a police officer in the Omaha Police Department and um, the police chief becomes senile and he starts making crazy commands and he commands you to assassinate the mayor and to assassinate the governor of this uh, state. Do you have to obey him? Do you need to submit to his authority? And I think everybody would recognize, no, I'm not going to do that. But they would not be able to explain why they should do that. But I think... Just intuitively, intuitively, they recognize that the senile police chief has no authority to command things that are outside of his jurisdiction and which contradict his mandate. Okay, that's the key issue. That was what was happening with the apostles when they refused to obey governing authorities who commanded them not to preach. That is what was happening with Judge Roy Moore, when he refused to obey a command of Thompson that really is outside of Thompson's legitimate jurisdictional limits, according to the Constitution, original intent. Constitutionally, Thompson has no authority to command him to remove the commandments. He certainly has no biblical authority. In fact, since our country has always been acknowledged to be ruled by words, words are the highest authority, since it's been acknowledged to be ruled by words, any time that a ruler gives orders contrary to those words, courts have said that these unconstitutional commands are null and void and they have no authority. No authority. Okay, the context of that first phrase is defined by the rest of the verse. Paul goes on to say, for, here is the reason, for there is no authority except from God. Now, the only interpretation of that phrase that does not put Paul into hypocritical contradiction of his own commandment is the interpretation that says the only authority that a magistrate has is an authority that has been delegated by Almighty God. He says there, authority that God has not delegated is not authority. There is no authority except from God. Now, the literal Greek is even stronger because the word except is made up of two Greek words, if not. Now, if you look it up in any Greek interlinear, here's what you're going to see. It says, there is no authority if not from God. If it's not from God, it has no authority. Now, just in case you have a hard time buying this, 
Uh, let me show you how the same principle would work just in terms of human law, in terms of constitutional law, or, or phrase it another way. How do courts treat laws that are unconstitutional? Okay, and we'll use that as an illustration. In the Mayberry versus Madison case of 1803, the court said, quote, all laws which are repugnant to the Constitution are null and void. In the Norton versus Shelby County case, the court ruled, quote, an unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed, unquote. Let me give you another quote. Here's from volume 16 of American Jurisprudence, section 177. It says, the general rule is that an unconstitutional statute, though having the form and the name of law, is in reality no law, but is wholly void and ineffective for any purpose, since unconstitutionality dates from the time of its enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding it. No one is bound to obey an unconstitutional law and no courts are bound to enforce it. Now, I bring that up just as an illustration to show Judge Moore does not have to obey, obey Judge Thompson if he's doing something unconstitutional. Certainly, it's unbiblical. So that's just trying to uh, uh, get across to you that kings don't have just absolute power to command you anything that they want to command you. Now, that's a revolutionary concept once you understand it. But it's revolutionary in our obedience as well. By the way, it led to the American Revolution, that concept. It's revolutionary in our own obedience as well. That's why Roman Christians had to obey Nero when he made commandments that were consistent with God's law. They couldn't say, oh, considering the source, you know, I'm not going to obey Nero. You know, he's such a jerk. He's such a tyrant. I don't even listen to him. I don't need to obey him. And Paul was saying, no. If his commands are consistent with God's ordinances, you have to obey them as if God himself had given those ordinances. Okay, so this is revolutionary uh, in terms of our own obedience uh, to, to God. Uh, verse 2, otherwise it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. See, the authority of God delegated to a ruler is not nullified because that ruler has taken additional false authority to himself. You see that? Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now, if you were in Rome and you were just fed up with Nero and you, you said, hey, we, we need to start a revolution, but there was no civil magistrate to align with you. That's, that's allowable. You can come to arms, you know, if Nebraska calls us to secession or something like that. Uh, not that any of them would. <laughs> but you can't just pick up a revolution on your own. And so all these guys are rioting out there. Just the fact that he is such a tyrant and is so ungodly, does not give you the right to loot and to steal because God says his ordinances remain his ordinances even if it is an ungodly tyrant who is imposing those ordinances. Do you see that? So there's two sides to this equation. It limits the state, but it also limits us. We must obey those, those uh, ordinances that reflect God's law. On the other hand, Caesar has no authority to command you to fail to fulfill God's commands. Now, if that's true of a citizen, how much more so is it true of Judge Moore? Because he's a magistrate. He has responsibilities to the Constitution. He has responsibilities to God. And just because a humanistic judge comes along and says, hey, I want you to now start operating in terms of humanism, doesn't mean he has to obey that. No, that's ridiculous. Uh, he has a responsibility before God to make sure that he defends his people according to true justice and uh, operates in terms of the true authority that God has given to him. 
And so what, what has happened many times is that governments like states have interposed themselves between an ungodly tyrant and the people. They've protected the people. What that means is they have said to the tyrant, this far and no further, I am a lawful magistrate of God. And I'm saying you don't have the jurisdiction to be telling my people what to do here. Congress, uh, um, actually, yeah, the three branches of government have done it to each other. Um, states have done it. Uh, there have even been individual, uh, individual counties uh, that have done it. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, that I think I put down here uh, somewhere. No, I didn't. Maybe I'll run across them later. Okay, let's move on. Point C. Civil authority is religious authority. Now, this can be seen not only in the fact that in the Greek of verse 4, it calls the ruler a deacon. It's the same word we have for a deacon, a diakonos, or a servant of God. But the unusual term that's used in verse 6, it says they are God's ministers, and the word used in verse 6 for ministers is leturgoi, and leturgoi means a religious official. That's the word that we get liturgy from, okay, a leturgoi, which means that the civil magistrate is every bit as much a minister of God as I am. He ministers God's word in terms of justice in the civil sphere. I minister God's word in the ecclesiastical sphere. But you cannot get away from the religious connotation. If you are a servant of God or minister of God, it's religious. It's religious and inescapably religious. And the source of law is inescapably religious. Either they are later goy of God or they are later goy of the religion of humanism. But you cannot avoid religion. You cannot avoid religion because the highest authority is automatically the God of that state. And it, it, it's just the way it works out. If there's no higher a power than a court, then the court is the God of that land. If there's no higher uh, power than the president, the president is the, is the God of that land. And our nation was affirmed on the very opposite because they saw the tyranny that was going on in England and they affirmed that our nation has laws that stand above the rulers and which our governors and justices are accountable to. It's the law of God. And they must be faithful ministers of God's word to the nation. Now, the word later goy implies also reverence, a reverence for God. David said, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why blasphemy was punishable by common law in American courts. This is why oaths could not be taken by atheists in early America. No one believed their oath. I mean, you're swearing according to God, according to higher power, and you don't believe in a higher power? Yeah, I can't take that oath very seriously. Okay? Uh, the Constitution, let me just give you one example. The Constitution of Mississippi said in 1817, no person who denies the being of God or a future state of rewards and punishment shall hold any office in the civil department of the state. Why? Because they said he wasn't biblically qualified. David said, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Here's a man who doesn't even believe in future rewards and punishments. What kind of thing is going to hold him in check? They said he has absolutely no basis for being in government. A magistrate must be a leitur gos. Now, Joe Moorcraft points out, that Romans 13 must be read in light of Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. And I think he is right. Let me explain what Job means by that. Every one of Paul's epistles is divided up into two parts. The first half of the epistle is the doctrine 
And then the second half is the practical application of that doctrine. And in the middle is a little hinge that says, therefore, in light of this, here is how you ought to live. Well, that's what Romans 12, verses 1 through 2 is doing. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in light of all of these doctrines, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, so what's going on here is in chapter 12, he is telling citizens how they can yield themselves in mind and body to God. In chapter 13, he is telling magistrates how they can yield themselves in mind and body to God. That's the logic of the flow of his argument. Now, point D says that might does not make right. Um, he says, therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Uh, the, the ancient Greek philosopher Thrasymachus said that um, uh, basically right makes right because in his secular mind there could be no higher justification than the state. Uh, you know, there's, if, there is, if, the, if he's the highest authority, you can't say that you're justifying what you're, do, what you're doing in, in terms of a higher power. And so he said the reason something is said to be right or wrong is because the government says it's right and wrong and the government has the power to back it up. Okay? So that's where the, the expression might makes right uh, comes from. <clears throat> and that is so contrary to a biblical thought and the Declaration of Independence fought strenuously against that idea. If you've never read the Declaration of Independence, you definitely need to do so. The atrocities that are being perpetrated in our, our land, they are far worse than the things that you read in the Declaration of Independence. And if we ever live in a society in a time when... Uh, when you know, secession or a revolution under a lawful magistrate would be, would be allowable. I mean, I, I would think certainly it would be now. But unfortunately, most magistrates are just as corrupt and just as compromised. And yet here we find a man who, by the way, a judge is not in a position where he could lead uh, a revolt because he does not have the power of the sword, okay? Uh, there's branches of government. But in any case, what, he can protect his citizens. And when he does protect his citizens and he stands up for principle, we need to stand with him. We can't allow him to be burned and to be thrown to the lions. Anyway, the point I was making in point D is found in verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Uh, most people only relate to the government because they're afraid of the government and they don't want to get in trouble with the government. And Paul said, hey, you've got to think way beyond that. You need to be thinking in terms of God and where your conscience is clean before God, okay? And God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so you can see in many different ways, Paul is illustrating the truth of point number one. Point number one, the only authority that the state has is a religious authority that comes from God Almighty. Point number two, magistrates must serve God, are appointed by him, and are accountable to him. Now, I've already preached on uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2, the, the passage, I jumped ahead a little bit there. But I think it's obvious from, from uh, the text that the magistrates are not called to be tyrants who do whatever they want to do. They're called to be servants, and servants do what a master wants them to do. They're called ministers or servants of God, verses 4 and 6, servants for the people, verse 4, 
And if they're appointed by God, verse 1, then they're accountable to God and they're going to answer to God for how they rule. Now, if they are God's ministers and servants, verse 4, then a servant must do what the master says. Who's the master? It's God, right? And so I think there's no getting around the idea that magistrates should acknowledge God's lordship over them. And that is the heart of the Judge Moore case. It's the authority, the lordship of God in the court. And our cry should be the crown rights of King Jesus. He is the Lord of those servants. Point three, magistrates are responsible for implementing God's laws. Now, again, this seems so strange to many Christians, implementing God's laws. But it was not at all strange to the founders of our republic. Our first president, George Washington, said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Andrew Jackson, on June 8, 1845, said in reference to the Bible, that book, sir, is the rock upon which our republic rests. When Nathaniel Freeman instructed a grand jury in 1802, he said, the laws of the Christian system as embraced in the Bible must be respected as of high authority in all our courts, and it cannot be thought improper for the officers of such a government to acknowledge their obligation to be governed by its rule. And there's a ton of other quotes like that that could be given. Magistrates are responsible to apply God's laws. Now, this can be seen in five ways in this passage. First of all, well, we've already mentioned that all authority that's legitimate authority is delegated by God, right? But point A here says delegated authority necessitates delegated law since law is the expression of authority. If the source of authority is God, which verse 1 makes clear that it is, then the source of law for a ruler must also be God. Now, that's just a simple logical deduction from verse 1, and I'm not going to even comment on it because I think it's pretty straightforward, but I think we need to apply the same logic to Judge Thompson. If he says we should not operate in terms of the Bible, if we should not acknowledge God in the courtroom, then whose authority, by whose authority do we live? It's not by the Constitution. I mean, the judges have been ignoring the Constitution for how many generations? That's not their authority. You know, when it really boils down to it, there is a few judges that have been honest and said that they are the true authority. And so they are God. They are the ones who dictate to an entire nation what should and should not happen. I think we just need to apply the same logic there. Okay, but we don't need simple logical deduction from verse 1. Verse 2 makes it explicit. Verse 2 says, Therefore... Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now, Paul is not saying that every law that a king passes automatically becomes an ordinance of God, automatically becomes a, a law of God. Now, that's the way King George III uh, uh, interpreted it, and many, well, several, I shouldn't say many, but there were other British monarchs whom the Puritans resisted. That's the way that they interpreted it. Uh, some of those British monarchs said the king is law, and the phrase, the Latin phrase that they used is rex lex. Rex means king in the Latin. Lex means law. And so they said the king is law, and whatever the king says is as binding as if God himself said it. And they quote this verse, and they say, see, right here in the passage it says, therefore whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. We are the voice of God to the people. Now, unfortunately, and this is what grieves me the most, is that Christians call in to radio stations and they criticize Judge Moore on exactly the same basis. They say, well, you have to obey the government. Well, that's saying rex lex. That's saying the king is law. That's saying that whatever the king says is automatically God's ordinance. And uh, that is definitely not what Paul is saying here. One of the important books that framed the thinking of our founding fathers 
according to studies, again, by Lutz and Heinemann, Barton, Amos, and many other people, was a book that reversed those two words in its title and called it Lex Rex. It was written by a Puritan by the name of Samuel Rutherford, and it became an illegal book. <laughs> and you can see why when these tyrants didn't like there to be a, a law that was over them. But this Puritan argued that the law was king, and thus the name Lex Rex. He showed biblically and in terms of English legal history that God's laws trumped any king's words. He argued for, that for a king's laws to have any authority, they must be the ordinances of God. And Rutherford argued from Christ's commands, for example, to flee arrest. Well, that's not submitting to authority, to flee arrest. And also from Christ's commands that they had to preach even in hostile territory. He argued from the apostles, disobedience of authorities. He argued from the Old Testament. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, and I think every family needs to have Lex Rex on their shelves. It's a fantastic treatise by an old Puritan. And by the way, it was one of the things that, that really highly influenced uh, the founding fathers of America. There were a number of other Calvinistic books that influenced their thinking in these areas. Um, but they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Ought deals with law, and God's laws trump man's laws. And so what Paul is saying in this chapter, in this chapter, by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier, this chapter is not describing what is, it's describing what ought to be. It's describing the ideal government, okay? And so what Paul is saying in this chapter is that resistance to true authority is identical to resistance to God's law. God's ordinance is authority, and authority is God's ordinance. Verse 2, I think, is as, as explicit as you can get that a ruler must rule by the ordinances of God. And if I resist a command that is unlawful, I'm also resisting a command that has no authority. And so we've got to distinguish in our minds between what is legal and what is lawful. Abortion is legal in our land, but it is not lawful in terms of either the Constitution or in terms of biblical law. So I think we need to distinguish between, uh, between uh, those terms. And by the way, with Judge Moore, it's not a situation where Judge Moore is doing something lawful but illegal. What he is doing is both lawful and legal because he is operating in terms of the laws of the nation are unconstitutional. They are null and void. He is not doing something illegal like many people say that he is. Um, states have interposed themselves when something unconstitutional was done by Congress. Presidents have done the same thing. President Andrew Jackson ignored a Supreme Court ruling. And he simply went ahead and enforced the law that the Supreme Court had said was unconstitutional. He said, it's Mr. Marshall's ruling. Let him enforce it. And of course, the Supreme Court was powerless to do anything about it. But I think we need a president who will stand by Judge Moore. And we need to encourage our president to stand by him. We need a Congress who will impeach the petty wickedness of tyrants like this Judge Thompson. We need to encourage Governor Bob Riley to stand with Moore like the former governor did. Now, the third, and he may, he may yet. I don't know how this is all going to mesh out. The third proof that God's laws must continue to govern nations can be found in point C, which says to be a terror to evil and not to good, verse 3, the magistrate must have some standard of definition. Paul indicates that this standard is God, for he is God's minister to you for good. And he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So do you get the logic of that? Uh, think of it this way. Let's just do the reverse. We can all think of countries that are, uh, 
we can all think, how, how does it word it here? Um, are being a terror. We can all think of countries that are indeed being a terror to good. Can't we? Israel terrorized Jesus and crucified him for doing good. Nero terrorized Christians for doing good. So he's not describing here what is. He is describing what should be. He is describing an ideal government. Okay. Keep in mind that chapters 12 through 13 are prefaced by the two words that indicate we're talking about a ruler who has presented himself, as a, his body, as a living sacrifice to God, who's not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of his mind so he can prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. So when verse 3 says that this government terrorizes evil, praises good, you need to ask the question, okay, who defines good and who defines evil? Well, it can't be, it can't be our humanistic minds because the humanistic minds in America have called homosexuality and abortion uh, good and free sex good, and they've protected it in the law. And what they have called bad is having Ten Commandments in the courtroom or Ten Commandments in schoolrooms. So it cannot be the government. Who defines good and evil? It has to be God. Because Jesus said there is no one good but one. That is God. Matthew 19, verse 17. He alone is the source of good, the definer of good, the standard of good. And his law alone can define good and evil. Romans 7, verse 7 says, I would not have known sin except through the law. God's law defines good and evil. Verse 4 does not define what a magistrate can do apart from God. It says, for he is God's minister to you for good. It's with God. You cannot separate those two things. Okay, the fourth evidence that God's law is in view is in verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And we already dealt with that. But the conscience deals with God. It deals with his laws. And he's saying it goes way beyond being afraid of punishments from the government. No, you've got to relate to the government in terms of your relationship to God. Okay, fifth evidence is actually the same as point number six. So I'm going to take those two together. But it's that the scripture does not consider all taxes to be lawful. Now, if everything that the state did was automatically lawful, then any tax that imposed would automatically be lawful. But in verse 7, he says, render therefore to all their due. Now, verse 8 uses the exact same Greek word for due or what is owed. The Greek word is ophelo and says, owe no man anything except to love one another. And then he goes on to say, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So just think of the logic there. He's saying, the only thing you owe is love. What is love? Love is the fulfilling of the law. Therefore, the law defines what you owe. And I do not think it can be by accident that the Apostle Paul in verse 7 says, you need to pay the taxes that you owe. And then he immediately defines what we owe in verse 8 by the law of God. Can you see the logic that is in there? I don't think that that can be by accident. And to make the point, let me ask this question. Did the citizens in England who were in the tax bracket above 90% owe that 90%? See, if they were to tithe 10% to God and they were to give 92% to the government, they would be giving more than they earned. L listen to this. R.J. Rushduni quotes Luigi Barzini saying, The late Luigi Ainaudi Italy's foremost economist and ex-president of the Republic calculated that if every tax on the statute books were fully collected, the state would absorb 110% of the national income, unquote. Now, 
Are the citizens of Italy bound to give 110% of what they owe? Well, it's impossible. It's impossible. And so I, I just give those to illustrate, even in terms of logic, it doesn't make sense to say you owe everything that the government says that you owe. There has to be a definition. The magistrate must look to the Lord God for what is owed and what is not owed. And I want you to notice that the only two taxes, there's only two taxes that are mentioned as being legitimate in this chapter. One deals with customs, deals with other countries, and the other deals with direct taxation. There's only two taxes that, uh, that, that are mentioned here. In contrast, in our country, we have income taxes, property taxes, social security tax, workman compensation tax, inheritance taxes, value-added taxes, sales tax, corporate tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, and you can go on. There's actually another longer list of taxes, gasoline taxes, taxes upon taxes. We don't need all of those taxes if the government would restrict itself to the powers and the roles that they were intended to have. And so I want to hurry on, just whiz through the rest of the material. I want you to notice that the magistrates have very, very limited roles. First of all, they act as God's servant of vengeance by terrorizing evildoers. Verse 3, they bear the sword to punish criminals and to enforce contracts. They serve citizens. Verse 3 says God's minister to you, God's minister or God's servant to you, by protecting life, property, liberty of law, abiding citizens. They enforce God's law. They praise the law-abiding and they condemn evil. Beyond that, the government has no role. See, the Bible presents an extremely limited role for the government. And when they go beyond that, the Bible says they're engaging in tyranny. In fact, if you look at the book of Daniel, you'll see that all of the governments that he is prophesying will come from the time of Daniel up to the time of Christ are all going to be tyrannical. With the exception of Israel, he calls them all beasts. They are bestial. The book of Revelation does exactly the same thing. It describes Rome as being bestial in its character because it's overstepped their roles in God's eyes. Okay, point five shows that they also have limited powers, not just limited roles, but also limited powers. How far can the government go to promote good? You know, some people say, oh, yeah, the government's supposed to be doing good. So we need to be having government education and we need to, you know, have the government spending money educating the public on, you know, the dangers of smoking and cancer causing agents. And and we say, no, no, it cannot go beyond praising the good as much as the government might want to help good people to prosper as much as the government might want to help good businesses to not fail, as much as they might want to help good families to not make mistakes in the raising of their children, Paul says that the only role that the government can proactively do in order to help good people is in verse 3. He tells the citizen, do what is good and you shall have praise from the same. Now that seems pitifully, pitifully weak to many people. You know, they don't want that kind of a government. Surely the government needs to do more than just praise good people. Surely the government can at least prevent accidents by, on the job perhaps, you know, by making some rules, present, prevent disease through forced vaccination and help people in other ways. And yet Paul says, no, the only thing that the government can proactively do in order to help good people is to praise the good people when they are doing the good. The onus is on the good people to be doing the good works and the government's responsibility is to protect those good people from the attacks of the evil ones. Can you see that? It's limited powers. <clears throat> this chapter is not a call for a paternal state to supply all of the needs and the wants of its citizens. 
Nowhere in this chapter can you find any justification for study grants, school loans, disaster relief, etc., etc. And nowhere in the Constitution can you find any examples that can justify the unconstitutional, the unaccountable agencies that are proliferating in our nation. You can't find it in there anywhere. There are no etc. in the Constitution, and there are no etc. in this text. God wants the government to have a limited role and not to be a political messiah. And so, in the positive realm, they can praise the good people for what they're doing. Okay, what about the negative side? The most they can do to prevent evil is to punish evil after it has been done. Now, this is a critically important point for you guys to understand as well. Notice the if in verse 4. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The action of the, of, of the legitimate civil government against evil people is only after they have perpetrated the evil action. God does not authorize the government to prevent bad thoughts. God does not authorize the government, you know, to uh, be, <clears throat> be involved in sting operations or to be snooping into bedrooms trying to find, you know, maybe this person might be uh, doing evil to prevent evil from happening in some way. And yet most of the agencies that are proliferated are designed to do exactly that. <coughs> God nowhere authorizes OSHA or a host of other regulatory agencies that are trying to prevent evil from happening. And people say, well, if we don't have OSHA, what happens if somebody gets a, an accident on the job because of the carelessness of the business? Well, what happens, the Bible says, is after that accident happens, the government steps in and it makes sure that true justice is provided and that this victim receives the kind of compensation that he deserves and the business will sit back and fear and say, Whoa, I better make sure I have good conditions, working conditions, and other businesses will fear. But the moment you get a police state that's trying to prevent evil, immediately you get tyranny. And that's exactly what we have in our nation. And then finally, they may legitimately collect uh, legitimate taxes. And I've already dealt with that point. But let me just say that if we had biblically limited powers and biblically limited roles for the government, we wouldn't need all of these other taxes. Those two taxes would be all that we need. That's all we'd need. What a refreshing picture of how the civil government ought to function. And so let's pray that the government would return to the book, to the Bible, that they would return to limited government, and eventually that we would correct some of the mistakes that are in the Constitution. It's not a perfect document, but let me tell you something. It's a pretty good document. I think we need to be holding that Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Northwest Ordinance, and common to the feet of these public officials, light a fire, let them feel the heat, and let them see the light. I think we cannot be silent. I think we have to be involved as a, as a citizenry. Whether or not Judge Moore wins this case is not the issue. The issue is, here is a man who is doing his job and standing for principle. We need to make sure that we are standing with him. Amen? We've got to be with him. In the beginning of the 1900s, Voltairine de Clare said, Quote, so long as the people do not care to exercise their freedom, those who wish to tyrannize will do so. For tyrants are active and ardent and will devote themselves in the name of any number of gods, religious and otherwise, to put shackles upon sleeping people, unquote. And so let's make sure that we are not sleeping men, women, and children. And may the Lord receive the glory and the honor for whatever happens to Judge Moore in the future. Amen. Father God, we come before you and thankfulness for your word.
Uh, this was an extra long sermon, but Father, I just felt I had to pour out my heart of what your word said on, on this issue, and I pray that you would help us as a congregation in some way to be able to bless Judge Moore. I know we can't give any money to, to him, but we can perhaps give some to his, uh, to his wife and just encourage, uh, encourage her. But Father, what a a difficult thing that they are going through, $5,000 a day fine and all of the other things that have come against them and the huge legal costs that they have been facing. Father, I pray against the, the enemies that are seeking to subvert our nation. I ask that you would judge them, O God, that you would cause them to flow away like a snail. Father, that the fire of your word, as the Psalms say, would consume them in your wrath. Lord, I pray that you would either convert them or take them out. Father, do not allow any longer these people to rail against you, to shake their fist in your face and to say to you thus far or no further, I pray, O oh God, that you step upon them. Step upon them, Father, as you you, we would step upon an ant that would rail against us. I pray, O oh God, that you would cause your truth and your justice to be lifted up in this nation and great glory to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you have said in your word to Jesus, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And Father, on behalf of Jesus, we ask for this nation. We ask that it would no longer be a nation that Satan could crow about and say, I am more powerful than you, God. Father, I pray that you would smite Satan, that you would uh, cause disaster upon disaster to come upon him. Father, we know that many times you've allowed things to go into darkness, like at the Tower of Babel where it looked like uh, everything was working together for evil. And yet, Father, you caused even that to fall apart in their very face and to cause it to work together for good. Father, you have done this over and over. You have worked through a minority. And, Father, it seems like there is a minority in this nation that is willing to do anything. And yet, Father, in the War of Independence, we know that only 4% ever fought in the war. All the others were on the sidelines. And I pray, O oh God, you would raise up more than 4%. But, Father, you would raise up a Gideon's army that would make a difference and would make these officials see the heat. Father, I pray that we would no longer be lackadaisical in our approach to humanism, taking over one thing after another without doing anything. I pray, O oh God, that you would rise up a holy fire within the belly of people that would no longer tolerate the tyranny that is coming upon our nation. Father, help us to make a difference. And I pray, O oh God, that as I uh, send this sermon out, outside of this church, uh, I pray, Father, that it would land in the hands of the right people and it would be protected from landing in the in the hands of the wrong people and i pray oh god that you would be glorified be glorified and judge more bless him father bless his family his dear wife and his children i pray father that you would sustain them and give them that peace that passes all understanding guard their hearts and minds in christ jesus father i pray that you would be glorified if it is your will O oh god i pray that you would cause uh this judge roy moore uh, situation to backfire upon the justices that as a result of Dobson and others who have been who have been uh, encouraging others to speak up against this that some of these politicians who have no principle would begin to realize that they better do something father that there would be impeachments of the justices in the Supreme Court father that there would be impeachment of the justices on that uh, 11th district court impeachment of the justice in the alabama supreme court father who have just gone in terms of political expediency and i pray that you would cause the government to stand up and father if that's not your procedure and your way of doing things we will submit to you but i pray that the truth of first corinthians chapter 
15, Father, would be true. You have promised that our labors in the Lord are not in vain, and I pray that His labors in the Lord, Father, would bear a hundredfold fruit in this nation and that you would raise up many other judges, many other uh, councilmen and, and uh, politicians, Father, who would be statesmen for you, standing upon the, the Word of God. And Father, we give you all of the glory and the honor and the praise for what you are going to do through this. In Jesus' name, amen.